Titan was like most planets. Too many mouths, not enough to go around. And when we faced extinction, I offered a solution. Genocide. But random, dispassionate, fair to rich and poor alike. They called me a madman. And what I predicted came to pass. Congratulations, you're a prophet. I'm a survivor. Hello and welcome back to The Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute and UVA Basketball. I'm Matt Winesett. And I'm Max Frost. And today we're joined by Lyman Stone. Lyman is an adjunct fellow at AEI, a research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and a former international economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. We had a great conversation with Lyman about fertility rates, demographics, whether or not the population bomb is real, U.S., Europe, the developing world, and what they'll all look like 20, 30 years from now, and a whole lot more. We had a minor technical difficulty while recording, so if the audio quality sounds a little bit different than usual, that's because it is, but... All in all, it's still pretty good, and we had a great conversation, so we know you'll enjoy the episode. Lyman, thank you for coming on Banter. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. So let's start by giving the listeners just a general idea about who you are, what you study. I remember I discovered you on Twitter a few years ago, and I think at the time, because you were tweeting out all this cool graphs and whatnot, and I think <laughs> at the time you were a economist for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but now last time I checked, you're in Hong Kong doing something totally different. So what happened? Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, personal <laughs> I get, journey? I get that question a lot. So I, uh, I started out in D.C. actually at the Tax Foundation doing tax policy, which every child dreams of doing tax policy <laughs> yeah. when they grow up. Um, but uh, then left there and went to the Department of Agriculture because my degree was in international trade policy. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing trade analysis there, which was delightful and fun. I was studying cotton in Africa in the former Soviet Union, so, uh, which, was, which was a lot of fun, but eventually realized not my passion. Yeah. Um, and so I was doing a lot of work as well on the side on some demographic issues and population forecasting and then had a chance not so long ago to switch to doing that full time. So my wife and I took an opportunity to move to Hong Kong. And uh, so I'm now working really on population issues and the question of uh, who's going to be here in 50 years or 100 years. Yeah. So what are the big population issues. I know. I, you know, I know. <laughs> what are those issues? <laughs> well, I know some time, some time yeah. ago, there was a whole population bomb yeah. idea. Um, it seems like that's passed or is the, right. So in the, right in the sort of 50s, 60s and 70s, you get this whole scare with, oh, birth rates around the world are so high. There's going to be a population bomb. It's going to ruin the environment and life's going to be miserable. It turned out not, not to be true. And one reason was because we got better at producing food. And so we fed everyone. The other reason is that fertility rates have been falling steadily. Uh, and over the last 10 years, globally, fertility rates have fallen below um, what women around the world say they would desire to have in terms of children. That's a new thing. That was never true in the 20th century on a global scale. It was true for individual countries, but not globally. So now around the world, the normal situation for a country is what we might call uh, not excess fertility, but insufficient fertility. That is, fewer children than women in those countries say they want. Some demographers will talk about replacement rate fertility, and that's the number of children you need to sustain a population without immigration, mm-hmm. depending on your local death rates between 2 and 2.2 kids. But what my concern is not so much replacement rate, it's uh, how many kids people want to have. 
people don't want to replace their population. I don't want to force them to have kids. <laughs> At the same time, if they want to have three kids, I want them to be able to have three kids. So that's my concern. And so to me, the last 10 or 15 years um, are really striking because we've entered a whole new uh, a whole new type of world in terms of the relationship between achieved and desired fertility. We want to get into that later, but still back on the population bomb, this is still something that, I mean, our still hear people talk about this all the time, that they Absolutely. think it's a major issue. It's a major issue if you think Hollywood is indicative at all about people. <laughs> Some the, people are cheering for Thanos. Uh, well, yeah, the Avengers movie, uh, my one of my favorite movies, Kingsman. The, I, the yep. you know, Samuel L. Jackson's character says yep. we've got a humanity's a virus and it's yep. making the earth sick. Yep. So it still seems to be in the public imagination. And you do still see birth rates in some in less developed mm-hmm. parts of the world are still like, I think, seven in Nigeria or somewhere in like Nigeria. that. It, yeah. And so was, were the population bomb people, were they wrong or were they just early? They were wrong. Um, and, you know, you actually see this um, more strikingly uh, with uh, uh, Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez that, um, you know, she talks about, you know, should you really bring a child into this world? Yeah. Um, you see this is a very real concern. Surveys show somewhere between 15 and 40 percent of women have some degree of concern about climate change with respect to having a child. Um, th- this concern is incorrect. I mean, the basic math doesn't work out on this. That if you if you assume that, say say you believe the the uh, the position that progressives would take on climate change that it's entirely human caused, caused by exactly the emissions that we can measure, and that if we changed um, our carbon uh, or our fossil fuel consumption, that would slow it down. Mm-hmm. Say you grant all that. Um, well, if you cut fertility rates in half, would it make a difference for climate change? The answer is no. Really? Because it takes too long. By the time those kids are growing up at an age where their individual carbon footprint is really significant, we're past the point of no return. If you – and I, I've, I've published the math on this. I've written this up using all standard conventional estimates from IP, what is it, IPCC or IPCCC, one of those. Yeah. Um, and essentially demonstrating that you cannot population control yourself to a sustainable world. The only path forward if you believe all those – uh, calculations is alternative energy, right? You have to actually change carbon intensity. So it's just wrong. It's just mathematically incorrect that population control or fertility reduction will meaningfully uh, change, will meaningfully enable us to alter um, our resource intensity. One of the slowest growing and actually now declining populations on earth is in China. Mm-hmm. And yet they're the fastest increase. Most of the global increase in carbon emissions is coming from China. Because it's not about how many people there are. It's about how fast their per capita uh, carbon output is growing. Or if you prefer not climate change, you can talk about water use or land use, any number of finite resources that exist. But the reality is that by any reasonable metric, the, the world can sustain replacement rate fertility if we have the will to um, adopt reasonable measures for having efficient per person uh, resource consumption. That means, you know, don't waste too much water. Don't don't waste too much energy. <laughs> um, that's if you use pessimistic assumptions. If yeah. you have more optimistic ones, it's even easier. So what is causing this decline in fertility? I know, uh, I know that as countries generally become wealthier, birth rates mm-hmm. go down. But by the same token, as countries become wealthier and the safety nets grow, it should be easier to have kids. Yeah. I know in Scandinavia, for example, mm-hmm. I think there's a isn't that kind of the quintessential place where birth rates are way down? Well, the Scandinavian countries actually do have higher fertility than Southern Europe. 
um, which surprises people because you imagine Southern Europe, Catholics, stereotypically, you think of Catholic countries as having lots of babies. Well, mm. it turns out not to be true, actually. Mm. Um, with a couple basic controls, Catholic countries tend to, tend to have lower fertility. The, the driving force here um, in the long run is about the shift towards um, human capital as the main driver of economic growth rather than uh, brute manual labor, right? So as people move away from the farm and as they move towards jobs that require lots of education, um, parents, families, communities invest more in making each individual child as productive as possible rather than maximizing the number of children. Also, as people shift from family farms to wage labor in the market, parents can't capture the income of kids, so the financial incentive to have kids is less. When you have a social safety net, that reduces fertility because you don't need the kids to care for you, right? Mm. But this is in some sense a good reduction. Like we don't want people who don't have kids to be like out on the street starving when they're, when they're old. So we don't want to undo these things. But what we're seeing now in the U.S. is totally unrelated to any of these or in developing countries. There's been no rapid change in the social safety net that can explain it. There's been no sudden additional shift away from a, a subsistence agriculture in America in the last 10 years. That hasn't happened. Um, what's actually going on um, is a shift in um, the economics of education, of housing, the cultural norms and social norms around family, fa uh, family mm -hmm. formation. And the research suggests a really large amount of really awful education um, provided to young people about what their future life is going to look like. We tell people it's fine to wait until you're 26 to start looking for a spouse, mm -hmm. that that's not a problem. But if you want to have three kids, your odds of achieving that if you get married at age 26 or 27 are dramatically lower. All right, the clock is ticking on us, man. People talk about this just for women, right? That, oh, women's biological clock is ticking. In men, it's not, a, it's not quite as much a biological clock, although there are biological um, things that change. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but there is a, a social and cultural clock mm -hmm. that, you know, it is more difficult to have the family life you want, especially if you want to know your grandkids and go to their weddings. Um, when, when we get started later and we don't want people to rush into things they're not prepared for, but we need to be honest with young people that if your career, that if your career plan involves you having, you know, 10 years of higher education and you're unwilling and you think you shouldn't be married while you're in school and that you shouldn't have a child until you have, you know, five years of your career afterwards, you might not have the family life you envision. So you need to consider your trade-offs. Yeah. So what, what is happening in America right now? People, demographers say the replacement rate is about 2.1, I think, for total fertility. Are we near that? I think we're at a, okay, and we're at a population at about 320 million, if I remember correctly. Something like Something this. like, you know, this is what all the, you know, consultant questions always <laughs> assume 320 million. Yeah, Easy yeah. to divide. Are we shrinking as a country, growing? What's, what's happening? We're not shrinking. So we, we have enough immigration that we are still growing. The, uh, but the fertility rate right now is, is just uh, a hair above 1.7. We are at the lowest fertility rate in our history. And that means if birth rates for women of a given age remain the same over the next 30 years as they are today, a woman hitting puberty today would have 1.7 children. It really stinks if you're the 0.7 child. One <laughs> wonders what one is missing. But... Um, but <laughs> of course it's an average, but, um, uh, but the, the point is that, uh, we're, we're way below replacement rate fertility. Uh, that difference 
translates into social security solvency being something like 30% uh, less solvent in the long run, um, depending on exactly how you count it, what assumptions you make, but somewhere between like 15 and 30% less solvent. Um, this makes, uh, depending on, if you, if you believe the most recent research about the relationship between population growth and economic growth and inequality, you're talking about much lower per capita economic growth, you're talking about much higher inequality, you're talking about uh, much lower uh, share of GDP going to labor instead of capital. Um, really bad stuff, actually, if this continues. And right now it looks like it will continue. But again, replacement rate fertility um, is interesting. Um, but the thing you have to keep in mind is that the average American doesn't say they want replacement rate fertility. They say they want about 2.6 kids. So when you think of it that way, we're not 0.4 kids below. Yeah. We're... We're like a whole a whole child below what people want. There's a missing child in the average American family. Well, I think that's an important distinction to make too, because otherwise people would say, "Oh, well, let's just you know have more migrants come in to fill to fill the gap." Right. But the point that you're making right. is not that it's, it's not, not just a numbers game. It's, it's you know, not. It's it's not just about numbers. It's about the lives people want to live. Um, and that's the thing is we people talk about like, oh, you can just substitute these things. Well, but, you can't substitute for a child that a family wanted to have and they never got to have. There's not a substitute for that absence in their life. But beyond that, immigration and natural growth are complements, not substitutes. Yeah. If you have no native population growth and you let in 2 million immigrants, good luck preventing riots. Yeah. I mean, good luck. Who, who are they going to marry? Each other? Well, good luck having integration. Not even assimilation. You know, you can talk about assimilation. Should they learn English? Should they eat burgers instead of tacos? I don't – whatever. My concern isn't so much assimilation. It's just integration. It's just all getting along, mm -hmm. right? And if we want to get along, you need, you, know, you need to have some degree of socialization between each other, intermarriage. And if the native population is a totally different age cohort than the, than the immigrant population, if there's no native population coming up that makes older native people feel invested in the future – you're not going to have effective integration. So you can't substitute immigrants for babies. And it's not because of cultural incompatibility. It's just because these things work together. They're yeah. not replacements. They're complements. Yeah, and Europe seems to be doing the exact opposite thing of what you're right. talking. I mean, they, I remember during the whole modern crisis, people, they've got even lower birth rates than we do in America, I think. Yeah. And they everybody was just saying, oh, we've got all these jobs that need to be filled. We can just bring in all the well, there's so many didn't, millions of people want to come. They didn't even have that many jobs to be filled. I mean, unemployment, unemployment in Europe's pretty high. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, but they, they, um, they talked about needing immigration to prop up their pension systems, right, which are bloated. Right. Is, so you think that's just maybe a fool's errand at the end of the day? Well, mathematically, it's 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 a nice way to kick the can, but ultimately, adding more immigrants doesn't make your pension system. They age too. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like immigrants don't get old. Yeah, um, right. They do. Um, which, you know, it's, it's in some sense good to kick the can, um, that yeah. does delay your problem, but it doesn't solve it. It, it. But yeah, and you've seen this academic research has repeatedly shown that a large shocks of low skilled immigrants have electorally significant outcomes in terms of the share of the vote that goes to far right parties. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not, it's not controversial at this point. It's pretty easy to demonstrate empirically. So that. My all too often people say, well, when you say integration, do you mean, you know, like, oh, do you think immigrants aren't working hard enough to fit in? No, I think that if you don't responsibly think about your society's absorptive capacity, natives will react yeah. in ways you don't want people to react. 
Um, it, it's not about the immigrants doing a bad thing. It's about just being realistic about what sorts of stresses your social system can handle. So now on a policy question, what, what countries have successfully increased their fertility rates, what, if any, mm -hmm. and what are the policies behind this? So there are a lot of policies that have been shown to create what you might call micro-scale fertility effects, where it's a policy that has impacts a small population, and we can see where there's this nice sort of quasi-experimental gap. So we can see, oh, this raised or lowered fertility for these people. Mm -hmm. Finding countries where there's been a macro-significant turnaround in fertility driven by policy is much harder, yeah. um, partly because we don't have a lot of experimental variation. Uh, the best example is the small post-Soviet country of Georgia, where a mixture of financial incentives and religious revivalism uh, yielded a huge increase in fertility that has persisted for at least a decade. It's very hard to duplicate in other countries because they're 92% Georgian Orthodox and the patriarch is a religious and political hero for resisting Soviet persecution and enormously popular. Interesting dude. Um, but when he steps out and says, I will personally baptize every third child to a married Georgian Orthodox couple in the country, his, as we say scientifically, his uh, intention to treat group already covers 92% of the population. Yeah. And he's beloved. Who do we have like that in America? Well, no. Um, Trump could baptize every kid. You think that'd be a bad idea? 92%. There's theological problems with that aside from... <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but no, there are cultural things. There have been studies showing that like different media exposures matter for birth rates. But um, but it is hard to duplicate, and we don't really want the government intervening in culture that way. Like, yeah. is it your job? Yeah. Um, so more interesting for the United States, Australia did implement a baby bonus for a while. And what it meant is whenever you had a baby, you got a check in the mail. And it was a large check. I think it mm. came to something like um, 30% of average annual income. Just check in the mail. Boom, you get it. This affected fertility, <laughs> as one might imagine. Yeah. And it's not just because it changed fi families' finances. It's because a big check is very salient. Yeah, It's easy to miss a tax cut where you get $9 more per month. No one misses a $15,000 check in the mail. <laughs> yeah. Even if it does less for your budget in the long run, it's so big in your head. Um, and so this did cause a turnaround in fertility. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of academic research on this at this point. It's it's not very controversial. It's general agreement that it caused a substantial change in fertility to something like the tune of 0.2 kids per woman um, over the period the policy was implemented. It's been repealed now. Yeah. Um, Great. <laughs> fertility has fallen a little bit since it was repealed. Too, too surprise, expensive surprise. Or... Too expensive. But also unpopular because um, well, popular with some people. Not popular because the politics of writing checks to uh, immigrant mothers, to unwed mothers, to uh, – these these are dicey politics. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't like them. Now, the hard thing is if you want to increase your fertility, statistically speaking, the most – the majority of those births are either going to be uh, un, unwed or immigrant. Now, it's not unwed is not a majority. Immigrant is not a majority. But if you sort of take the non-overlapping set right there, that's going to be a majority. Yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine a bunch of libertarians would also maybe 
Like when people when, pe- when people <laughs> yeah. talk when people talk about, talk about policies in the U.S. context, they a lot of them say, "Why should we subsidize one lifestyle yeah. over life choice over another?" Yeah. Yeah. And the book's a little outdated now. I know the journalist Jonathan Last wrote a book about yes, ten years ago. Yeah, and he good. yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. But he, I think, talked about a couple of different countries that have tried different policy schemes to increase fertility. Mm-hmm. I think maybe Russia and France and some other ones. And he seems to conclude it doesn't really work a whole lot. So there's very limited effectiveness. The, the price tag associated. Uh, academic research repeatedly shows that there are fertility effects to pronatal policies. Yeah. The problem is the price tag is quite high. So the estimates for an additional marginal child, so a child that never would have been born otherwise, but is now going to be born, runs somewhere between uh, $100,000 and $500,000 per child. Now, that's really expensive. At the same time, it's worth noting that the cost estimates of Medicaid and Medicare suggest it costs between $40,000 and $70,000 to add one year to a person's life. So if you think about it Hmm. that way, you suddenly realize, wait, if that child lives to be 70 years old, society came out way ahead. Like if your goal is to maximize life years, you'd be better off having more babies. But now, of course, we want to prevent deaths, which is its whole other thing. So it's not quite equivalent. Um, So it is expensive, but it can be done. Like Russia implemented a huge policy. It was like something like 120% of annual income worth of child incentives. Um, And they got a baby boom. Now, it hasn't quite lasted. And then they've had an issue that a lot of the babies were among minorities that the nationalist Russian government didn't want to promote fertility among. Um, But again, if you're not willing to accept a degree of ethnic pluralism, promoting births isn't going to work for you. Baby, there's a lot of types of babies in the country. If you're not prepared to accept that, good luck. Yeah, so the libertarian argument does come up as well. Yeah. and I would simply say, uh, if you intend to retire, who's going to buy the stocks you want to sell? Who's going to buy the house you want to sell? Who's going to buy the hot dogs for the company that pays dividends that pay for your retirement? We don't even have to get into Social Security. There's no future for the stock market without a future for the population. Um, good luck on your – I mean ask a person in Appalachia or Detroit what happens to your savings if population declines and there's a permanently declining demand for housing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? So I would say self-preservation is the reason to support higher birth rates. Yeah. Well, so I, th- I think a lot of what we said we've we've been talking about in Europe and you know, well, I suppose mainly Europe, developing or mainly developed countries. Yeah. Um, but you know, in the global South, if you will, on the other side mm-hmm. of the world, you have a completely different trend, right? In terms of you have booming populations mm-hmm. across Africa, mm-hmm. um, much of the Middle East, South mm-hmm. Asia. What are what are you what are you seeing there? Uh, fertility is falling exceptionally rapidly in the developing world. It's falling faster in the developing world than it did in the developed world 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, and that includes Africa. And that's a demographers will fight over this. But my contention is that to really look at this, you have to compare urban to urban, rural to rural. And when you control for urbanness and rurality, um, fertility decline in the developing world today is happening at an incredible pace one might almost say an alarming pace. In fact, there's a brand new book out called Empty Planet. I didn't write it. I reviewed it, but I didn't write it. That argues that actually fertility decline in the developing world is happening way faster than dem- than demographers expected or really know how to get a handle on, and we don't know how to stop it. A lot of developing countries are already at below replacement rate fertility, despite having 
annual incomes of like $5,000 a year or something. Bangladesh is below replacement rate fertility. India is at replacement rate and falling. Almost all of Latin America is below replacement rate or near it. Um, South America, Central America is a bit higher. Um, Africa is still above replacement. Not all countries, but most of them. Um, but solidly half of Africa, uh, fertility rates are already below what women in Africa say they want to have. Um, the important thing to understand is when I say below desired fertility is a global condition, it's not like Africa is bucking that norm. In Niger, birth rates are below what women say they want. Hmm. And they're having six kids. Now that's because they want a lot of kids. Um, but this is an important thing to understand is that fertility decline is not unique to the developed world. It is developing world phenomenon. It's happening faster in the developing world and they're not prepared for it. They don't have the social safety nets to handle all these people who have fewer children than traditional societies expected them to have. They don't have the resources to pay for old age care. There is going to be a wave of loneliness and pain and misery and death in developing countries that they are not prepared for. And that's a very cheerful thing to say here, right? Not really, but there's, they are not prepared. We've had a couple podcasts in a row end on kind of somber notes, but you, I, we're not almost out of time, but you, you live in Hong Kong, so I want to get your opinion on this. How do you think demographics are going to affect global geopolitics? I know we always yeah. think of China as a very they're powerful, enormously favorable rising the threat. States. Uh, they're favorable to us. Absolutely. So Yes. I mean, yeah, I imagine with China's one child policy, when yes. with the gender imbalance and the aging, they're so not going to be in great shape. Living in China, I'm, I'm an optimist about potential for China-U.S. relations. Because China will is they're essentially at or near their peak um, in terms of their share of global um, anything output population take your pick their demographic situation is so dire and again they're not fully prepared for it if the U.S. had a somewhat more open immigration policy and if we got back up to replacement rate fertility quickly. By the end of the 21st century, we would almost be a population peer with China because they will have declined to somewhere between 500 and 900 million, and we will be somewhere between 400 and 700 million, and yet we'll still be vastly richer than them on a per capita level. Yeah. Um, the reality is the population situation in China is so severe that by the latter half of this century, the China scare is going to look silly assuming we don't screw it up and start a war before then. If we can patiently wait and not mess up our own demographic situation, which means maintain a suitably open stance towards immigration, not too open, but you know, consistent with our history, and, uh, and maintain historically normal birth rates for Americans, um, then we can expect that by the end of the 21st century, we will be in a far more favorable position globally than we were at the beginning, especially if we can cultivate alliances with African countries. Okay, that is a nice optimistic note to end it on. So <laughs> thank you for that. Lyman, thank you for coming on Banter. My pleasure. Thank you all for listening. And as always, if you have not already, please subscribe to Banter on iTunes or the podcast player of your choice. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star rating and review. And somebody actually did. I checked the rankings recently. A person, a username under the name TB12Pats. <laughs> I swear to God, it's not me. This sounds, I have. It's not you? Coincidentally, no. I have I have a very similar username, but mine mine is Brady's better than Manning. Uh, no, this, this guy says, or girl says, provides good insight into current events without overwhelming. 
It is clear the hosts enjoy what they do, and they do a good job of weaving humor throughout. Wow. Well, humor, we love current events. We love banter. We love TB12. We love. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you guys love it as much as we do. So please leave us some more nice uh, messages like that. That made my day. Yeah, we need some more because now that UVA basketball is over, we've got nothing left to talk about. And now that our three <laughs> best players have declared for the draft. We're going to be terrible next year. Yeah. So uh, comments is all we got. So please leave us some and we'll see you next week. Listen, I know Tony Bennett. I, you know, I'm a huge Virginia guy. Oh, we'll never win a championship more. with this team, though. I, they can't play <laughs> offense. They, can, you know what it is. Win here's the here's the bottom know. line. Here's the bottom line. There's gonna come a game in the tournament where they need to make a shot and get a shot, and they can't get it.